Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ginsburg podcast. I'm your host. I'm Washer Ginsburg. Fancy that. This is episode 59 of the show. Thank you so much for making it this far. I'm thrilled that you're here. There's 58 other episodes to check out. Yes, indeed. Um, thank you so much for being here. Um, my name's Osher, and uh, you and I are going to have an interesting hour and a bit together. My guest today, Kane Scanner, one of the premier fashion photographers in Australia, is joining us today. He is on Instagram most prolifically. Um, you can find him on Instagram. His uh, username is Kane, K-A-N-E-S-K-E-N-N-A-R. Uh, but yeah, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. If you're new, please subscribe to the show. You can subscribe in iTunes. That's the easiest way to do it. Or uh, I would recommend Pocket Casts, which is a fantastic smartphone app, which works both on uh, iPhone and on um, Android devices, but uh, I've found it to be the best podcasting app to enjoy podcasts on. That's what I listen to all my podcasts on. I can make great playlists and it's super duper, but yeah, you can subscribe on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm not hard to find there or on Instagram or on Facebook. I'm there. And if you like the show, thank you so much, by the way, to everybody that tweeted out about last week's show. Super, super stoked um, that 
you got that message and you supported the incredible work that Vithika is doing. Um, if it's for you, if you dig on the show, the best thing you can do for me is just simply tell a friend, throw out a, a retweet about the show or, or something. Just let somebody know about the show. That would be the best thing you can do for me. I hope your week's been good. My week was okay. Um, I've been in Amsterdam. I just got back to Los Angeles. It's uh, Saturday night in LA right now. Um, and Amsterdam's pretty good. I've taken on a bit of work at the school that I was going to at Think, the Amsterdam School of Creative Leadership. Um, I'm doing some work there, which is incredibly satisfying, but I'm just kind of... I'm not dipping my, I guess I'm dipping my toe into Amsterdam. I guess I am because I own a bicycle there now. I now own bicycles in Australia, in the new United States and in the Netherlands. Um, so there's a spare bike in Amsterdam. I think there's like 12,000 spare bikes in Amsterdam. But if you're in Amsterdam and you need a bike, let me know and I'll see what I can do. I'll tell you where it's parked and who's got the keys. It's a lovely bike. It's great. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed my week. Really enjoyed my week. The the class was great. Um, the sessions that I uh, I took care of were really really great and um, incredibly satisfying. Really really great conversations. I'm kind of like doing what I'm doing now, where I'm interviewing people, but on a slightly more academic level. And it's really really fun and exciting and brainy, but a lot of work because um, uh, yeah, I've got to do a lot of research if I'm going to go toe to toe with. Uh, a computational neuroscientist, which I did, and it was fun, and it was good. But uh, yeah, it's really exciting. Um, remember, I told you last week that I started journaling as a um, experiment. Well, it's been going okay. I've been doing fifteen minutes in the morning, fifteen minutes in the evening. So fifteen minutes right as I'm drinking my coffee in the morning, and fifteen minutes right before I kind of get in bed and, and start reading my book. Um, and I, f I think, I think there's a, like a percentage difference, percentage points of difference, not a massive shift in difference, but I feel a little more. Okay. And it's, it's been quite helpful. Like through the day, if I'm peeking out, I'll, um, I'll, uh, I'll whip it out and, um, my journal book that is, and just write whatever's going on in my brain down. It's some, something weird happens in your brain when you write stuff down. Some days are better than others, but I've had a couple you know, as often happens when I travel, I get extra tired and I drink too much coffee and the kind of delicate chemical ecosystem of my brain just goes, all right, fuck you. And I just go into freak out mode. And um, my brother's really great. He just goes, listen, just remember that it's not permanent. Remember that it doesn't last. And when I'm in the, you know, you know what it's like when you're in the, in the peak, it's, uh, it's hard to believe that. But he's right. It doesn't last that long. It lasts maybe a couple of hours at most, but it, it's not permanent. Um, so that was what happened happened this week. Um, I've also been digging on uh, old episodes of Cosmos, which has been really great, man. If you've never seen the original season of Cosmos with Carl Sagan hosting, that uh, will blow your mind. That stuff is unbelievable. And yeah. He just, Carl Sagan has a way of emoting in the most beautifully elegant, just passionate and descriptive way possible that in the purest form of science, we are all one. And it, it's amazing listening to him describe it because he believes it with such passion and, you know, sometimes there's a talk about of God of our understanding and for me it's 
you know, it's, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's in the details of the universe that I guess that's what I see. I, I, in the incredible complexities of, of the universe that that's where I see that, that thing that's bigger than all of us and those, those laws that govern all of us and the way that Sagan describes it. it I don't know. I, w- I would have liked to talk to him. Um, maybe maybe my view has been skewed from watching episodes of this because I watched it the first time around. Maybe I listened back then and it didn't sink in until I needed it later on when I needed spirituality in my life. But uh, yeah, it's pretty damn good if you can... If you can hunt it down, um, check it out. Um, they got deep quickly, didn't it? Let's talk about uh, mustaches. Good idea. Uh, pl- thank you, everybody that supported me this month, uh, this week th- from November. Some monster donations came in. I'm very, very someone donated 250 bucks. That's superb. Thank you, thank you, thank you. you please, all I, I'm all asking for is you donate one dollar. Just donate one dollar. Mobro.co, M-O-B-R-O.co slash Osher Ginsburg. Uh, that's my Movember page where you can donate to me. Uh, if you want to know what Movember is all about, go back and listen to episode six of the show. You can find it on my website, osherginsburg.com. But Movember supports two things that have definitely touched my life, uh, prostate cancer and mental health. Um, I, I lost a close family member to prostate cancer and, uh, well, shit, if you've been listening to the show, I talk about my mental health. I, I'm someone that lives with, um, uh, I deal with a mental health issue. I go about my day uh, with the brain that I was born with. It's kind of different to other people's brains. Um, but destigmatizing mental health and talking about uh, mental illness in a way that's not kind of scary, but just like, ah, oh, it's, it's just what... I've got, and that's what my brain does, um, is very, very important to me. And this is a way that I can publicly show that. I am a very big fan of Movember. I've been a big supporter of them for a long time now. I really believe in what they do. I really believe in the foundation. I believe in the guys. I believe in their ability to really, really deliver on their promise when you give them money. So I... um, I'm really asking you, uh, I'll only ask you uh, two more times after this because Movember will be over by then. Please, mobro.co slash Osher Ginsberg, G-U-N-S-B-E-R-G, and just give us a buck. That's all I'm asking for, just a buck. If you've got a buck to spare, please throw it my way. Uh, right, today's guest. Today's guest, is a, he's a pretty cool cat. He's one of Australia's premier fashion photographers. His name's Kane Scanner. Uh, you can find him on Instagram right now, K-A-N-E-S-K-E-N-N-A-R. I did one of my very first, you hear us talk about it, I did one of my very first ever photo shoots with Kane, and I describe it a little bit in the interview, but yeah, I was kind of fatter than I wanted to be. I was probably about 10 kilos heavier than I am now, and you know, getting put in stylists' clothes that they obviously, you know, thought I was thinner and the T-shirts are really skinny on me and I felt super fat and really uncomfortable. I didn't know how to smile in a photo. I don't know what the fuck was going on, but Kane taught me how to do that. And he really describes this. And you know me, I'm really into photography and Kane has a way of making the person on set feel so comfortable with him uh, that, the emotion reflected in their interaction comes out in the photo. And aside from his technical skill, which is immense, his communication skills and his ability to connect with the person that he's shooting really comes through in his photography. And and there's a lot of parallels that I'm sure you can draw in your 
business and your work and your life and whatever it is you do by listening to uh, to this chat. We do talk about his childhood, which was not like your childhood or my childhood or anybody's childhood. Uh, Kane grew up with his stepfather, Albie Falzon. Albie Falzon is probably one of the most important surf or documentary filmmakers uh, ever. He made a film called Morning of the Earth a surf film called Morning of the Earth, and he made a surf film called Crystal Voyager. Morning of the Earth really kind of explored um, waves, like real pioneering waves that no one had ever surfed before um, and a real uh, uh, a groundbreaking surf movie. And Crystal Voyager was just off the chain as far as experimental photography and just uh, complete surf culture. Like, And, and you hear um, Kane and I talk about um, what those films meant, but to grow up with a guy like that as an inspiration, um, Kane tells some pretty great stories about uh, you know being a kid on holiday in Sri Lanka. Um, but yeah, you probably are never going to be a fashion photographer. You might be. But I'm not going to be ever be a fashion photographer, but doesn't really matter because in this story, Kane talks about how his career became what it is and. That's why I love doing this show because no matter who comes on the show, you really get a sense of kind of some commonalities between how it all works. And Kane's story of his apprenticeship, his hard work, his dedication, and the sacrifices, the sacrifices that he's made for his creativity are really, really inspiring. So I hope you dig this. He's a fantastic human being. I really like him and I'm really grateful that he could come over. It was a nervous. I got nervous shooting him, uh, but you'll hear about that. Enjoy this. It's an afternoon with Kane Scanner. Tell me about it. Um, so I'm I'm really happy to have you here for for many reasons. One of them is that I don't know if you quite realise how much the influence you had on my photography. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thank you. I didn't know that. You no. really did. I could, oh, you, oh, cool. Like implant the, the the camera that I shoot. Everyone that comes on this show, I take their, their portrait shot. Yeah. And the camera that I shoot with, the first person I ever saw hold one was you. <laughs> the modified Polaroid. Yep. With the one, uh, 10B was my pride and joy, that one. You've got the B. I've yep. got the A. So I've got yep. the two composition windows. But you're also the guy that said, just get a Hasselblad X-Pen. You'll never look back. <laughs> And did you? Fuck yeah! You said it's the best travel cam you'll ever have. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's still, I've still got it. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, for thirty-five mil, that's the that's my favorite camera. It's the great well the, camera. It is. The trouble was, the trouble was um, buying the thirty millimeter lens for it, which cost as much as the, more than the body actually. Body, yeah, <laughs> I know they're they uh they hold the value those cameras, but they're. Which I'm, good. I'm grateful for. Yeah it's, yeah, it's amazing. But I remember, I think I did my first ever, I'm pretty sure I did my first ever, um, I think it was either a Clio or a, a Dolly shoot, I mm. think, with you. And it was at the Pioneer Studios. I don't think they're there anymore. I think it was Clio magazine, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, which is on Broadway. Yeah. And I, you know, I talk about on this show a fair bit, you know, I, I used to be quite overweight. I'm not now, but I've still got, it's kind of weird. I'm still a fat man stuck in a, you know, I still have fat and I still pull up my T-shirt like I'm super fat and I'm still, you know what I mean? So I remember I was just so wrapped up in in like shame and, and afraidness, but you made me feel real comfortable and you somehow made the photos look all right. 
Well, thank you. Um, well, I guess that's, yeah, I mean, I don't remember you being overtly fat or anything, but maybe that's just. Uh, well, yeah, just body dysmorphia. Like, I can't, I can't remember, but I remember it was, we, we had fun and uh, yeah, the shots did look good. I, I think that's um, the, the premise of always though, is to have fun. Totally. And I remember it was that, it was so long ago. I think your assistant had jeans that were written on in Nico pen or Sharpie and it was like pre-Subi yeah. um, customization. Just, just before there, yeah, was before the whole. Before they, before they launched when they were just doing yeah. jeans for mates. So I remember that. Now we're getting grey hairs. Oh, totally, man. My, <laughs> my grey beard is awesome. I love, love my grey. I love my grey beard. So... I'm glad you're here because it, Thank you. You know, I've had another photographer on the show before. I've had yeah. Eugene Tan on the show. Yep, know Eugene very very well. And um, but I haven't had someone who's a you know a fashion photographer on the show. And it, I you know I think your story is you know interesting to me only because I've seen blips of your career as we've shot together over the years. And I'm you know I just kind of like really interested to you know hear <laughs> hear how you've created this life that you live, this journey that I've been on. Yeah, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in the northern beaches of Sydney. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, blessed to be up in Wild Beach, which is, yeah, an, an idyllic kind of place to grow up as a young boy. Um, for in- for folks who don't know Sydney, it's like it's on a peninsula. So yeah. it's like one road in and one road out. Basically, yeah. And it's connected to this massive metropolis, but it's slightly exclusive geographically, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I guess you could say it's a smaller version of Montauk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. That's fair. That's fair. Um, Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's it's now fifty minutes or an hour, depending on traffic, outside of the Sydney centre, and um, that's where I yeah, that's where I had a really great upbringing, close to the ocean and around a lot of back then a lot of creative people. It was uh, we were surrounded by you know musicians, artists, filmmakers. Actors, all, all that you know, photographers. That was just a huge art scene community up there. Did you know that it was a creative scene, or were they just people that you knew who just happened to be doing stuff? And it was only when you got out of that you realised, hang on, this isn't like home. Um, no, I definitely th- definitely thought that was definitely a special place because, um, I mean, I was lucky enough to be around my stepfather, who was a uh, a movie maker, a cinematographer and a photographer and he made surf movies and documentaries and they were quite famous back in the day and a lot of his friends were really famous people that we got to hang out with and I was too young to know who they really were but, you know, hanging out with Crosby, Stills and Nash and I don't know, all, all kinds of, you know, people like that um, from the music genres to the, the film genres to art genres. Well, in Wild Beach, Dave Crosby and Steve yeah. Stills would come up to your house. Yeah, I remember Crosby. Oh, we went to Hawaii and hung out with him. Actually, I think it was Crosby we went to Hawaii with. But I remember watching Joni Mitchell play in the sand dunes at Palm Beach to to one of their um, my mum's friends' uh, weddings, and um, Daryl Hannah and Jay, um, Jackson Brown at Wild Beach. And uh, I mean, these are just you know things I can remember. But it was it was always really interesting people. And then you know, Ivor Davies lived down the road. Yahoo Serious. Um, guy from Dragon who passed away. It was always like that was just heaps of musicians and, and, and the whole film industry lives up in the northern beaches from what I kind of worked out. Um, so there was always film people around us, yeah. So as a kid though, you were, you, you, your stepfather was influential upon your 
what became the eye that you're now making oh, money with? Definitely. I mean, we would go away overseas to, I mean, we used to go to Bali for three months of the year anyway, but then we'd go to other countries to do his documentaries and just to travel. And uh, he gave me my first Nikon uh, F3HP to play with, which I took photos of when I was like 10. And that kind of got my eye going. Fully manual, yeah. 50 mil lens. Uh, 35, 35 mil lens. lens. Yeah, that was the standard. A bit yeah. wider. Um, yeah. And uh, that was my first kind of introduction to my own photography. And yeah. did you have a dark room in the house? No, no. I didn't. I actually didn't do a lot of developing at all. I used to send it to this little lab in Avalon that would make these amazing prints. And uh, that's how I used to do my film. And then, and then at school, I actually didn't do photography in year 11 and 12. I did it up to year 10 but kind of wasn't really interested in doing it. And I don't even think I was that interested in photography. I think I was more interested in music or going surfing, I think, or more so. Um, but I I think after I left school, I started to want to get back into photography and I had the chance to work with a photographer for a few months who introduced me to, yeah, the reality of um, photography at that time. So hang on, let's just go back a little bit. So. What, what's interesting for me is that what you considered just normal, just like, oh, no, this is what I do. I'm, you know, you go on to Bali three months a year. Yeah, at I mean, the age I was of like eight or nine. Yeah, from eight, I think I was going there, 1980, I think it was, or whenever, yeah. long time when it was not much, not much in Bali was beautiful back then. And uh, yeah, I uh, definitely was always out of school, always missing school, uh -huh. always going to somewhere weird and coming back with weird stories to tell the geography class or. Um, you know, what kind of films was your stepfather making? Uh, well, he besides he made a surf movie called Morning of the Earth, which is a classic surf movie. Oh my god, yeah, really? Yeah. So he made all that, that and you know, Crystal Voyager and stuff like that. Uh, and then he'd be making documentaries on um, cultures and religions. So he made some, uh, maybe both, might... hang on a second, both Morning of the Earth and um, Crystal Voyager were two of the most influential surf crossing over into art, crossing over into spirituality films that yeah, totally got yeah. made around that scene. Yeah, well, yeah, he was um yeah, he made those and he started tracks back in the day, the surfing magazine that's still going today and um yeah, he was he was into, you know, he, was, he came from surfing, but he was into spirituality from day one and he was interested in, you know, oh. capturing that and so he made Movies on the Kumbh Mela in India, um, which was a movie he actually made called um, Same As It Ever Was, which I think Brian Eno did the music soundtrack to or some music for. And um, he made a couple of other movies that were kind of like Baraka style, mm. you know, and uh, that were quite amazing that I don't know if they were mainstream movies or that people would really know about, but he was doing that stuff and going to Tibet and those kind of places back in the 70s and 80s. When no one was really thinking about was, going there. What, like a wind-up Bolex or something? Uh, yeah, I think he was using Bolex, um, Super 8 Bolex. I can't remember the other cameras he was using, but, yeah, from what I remember. Yeah. And, you know, he had 35mm camera. He had one of those Nobelex the panoramic, you know, the ones that... The swing lens. Swing, yeah, yeah. The lens that I've got a dodgy Russian knockoff. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, dodgy Russian knockoff is probably the same as that anyway. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so he was... He was uh, right into that kind of stuff. And I've got there's a, a classic picture I remember of Albie looking like Indiana Jones because at the time that was our favourite movies. We used to go we watched the first one like six times at the cinema together. And um, there's a picture of him in the top of the Himalayas in, in Tibet somewhere and he's got 
a leather jacket and um, the hat on with his Noble X camera and gloves and it's probably like minus 20 and he's just like sitting there on this rock looking like, yeah, it's just totally Indiana Jones. And I was just, oh, I always remember Albie in that picture. I'll never forget that. It's just like, wow, cool. Yeah, yeah. But um, so that was, I was pretty, pretty blessed to have him as a stepfather back then. Most kids wouldn't have any clue about the kind of Eastern influence philosophy that was coming out of the surface who were exploring these different parts of the world. Yeah. When you came to school and you said, I not only did I see active volcanoes, I saw these people playing five times a day. Or, you know, I know this thing called, there's another language, it's called Sanskrit. Like, did people look yeah. at you like you had two heads? I can't remember if I really would have talked about it because back in those days at school, you could be pretty much turned on for being out of out of the ordinary, you know. Mm wasn't really cool to be uh, different back then, <laughs> uh, especially in Australia, it seemed. Um, well, you know, it's probably, I don't know if it's changed now, but. Um, no, they like you to stay in your lane. Yeah, yeah. They like you to they like you to do the thing that they first saw you do ever and not ever do anything else ever. Yeah, that's that's definitely a little shoot, shoot you down, you know, yeah. the tall poppy syndrome, but that's another story. Um, but, I, yeah, I don't think I talked much about what I was seeing. I, mean, I was I was going through jungles and watching people in trances and, you know, all these kind of weird ceremonies and languages that was, to me, in the end, was just normal. I just loved it. I thought it was, that's cool. And um, But, yeah, to most people, people would freak them out. You're this little white kid going through the jungle. How did you get reacted to? Uh, I usually would just, I mean, my mum and Albie would just let me wander off into villages and I would go and stay with people for days. I, I remember we were in Candy in the middle of Sri Lanka filming a, this festival where people put hooks through their backs and hang off swings and stuff. That's a, like a really yeah. powerful, yeah, uh, a, it, people do it now somewhat for show, but also, yeah. but as a spiritual practice, that's, that kind of pain is, that's some really deep, deep yeah, stuff. Yeah, they're all entranced, those guys that are putting hooks yeah. through their bodies and they offered to put a hook through my mouth if I wanted and I declined at that age. But I met this, this you know, Sri Lankan family who um, they had a pet squirrel and, I was playing with it and I just asked my mum and, and Albie if I could go and stay with these people for a week in Colombo, which was like six hours away. And they said, yeah, sure. I mean, like what parents just let their child go off and <laughs> stay with someone they don't even know in the middle of another country. So I went, you know, stayed with this these, this family who I was washing with a bucket and eating with my hands and, um, you know, living in probably a different lifestyle than most Australian kids. And I thought it was really cool. And I, I did that most of my childhood, going to countries and just wandering off and finding and learning. And so, how did you even like come back? How did you relate to high school? You know, how how did high school even? How could high school possibly have kept you occupied in a mental space if you knew that somewhere there's this place where people are in trance-like suspension rituals and you know uh, there's adventure to be had and teachers are telling you to shut up, sit down, Skinner, you're you're yeah, causing a ruckus. Yeah, well, I I probably that would probably reflect in my um my marks at school. <laughs> <laughs> or my attendance, my attendance uh, was yeah always on the brink of being um, uh, yeah being told I couldn't come back because I didn't attend school enough. And um, Albie gave me a very important piece of advice one day. Just said, uh, "Just go surfing. Don't worry about it." <laughs> that was his. That was his look at the uh, school system. But they uh, figured they figured out that you obviously you're an intelligent man. Obviously, that you've got some intelligence, and there's a lot of education going on through these adventures. Yeah, I mean, I was really, you know, I was always really, you know, the top in geography because it's what I loved. So basically, whatever I loved, I was good at art. I was good at um, 
stuff like maths I wasn't very good at science because it didn't interest me it didn't have anything to do with what I wanted to learn or to uh, follow or to um, yeah immerse myself in so um, I think from yeah I mean I think that I was definitely a creative person from then mm. it was either whether it was I was born that way or it was just what I discovered and um, that was what led me onto the path where I probably yeah to now and yeah I don't really say was back. did sir did surfing ever look like it could have been something that was could have been made professional like I'm sure there were guys from your area that were becoming pros oh and stuff. yeah I mean I grew up me and a, a guy called Bo Young grew up surfing at Palm Beach Kitty's Corner on, on the northern beaches together and and you know his his dad was a famous world champion surfer back in the day and he became a world champion longboarder mm. as well um and so I was around people like that and all the professional surfers lived up there but no I, I mean I was a good surfer but I definitely knew I wasn't good enough to uh get on the ball tour. I, I think I just like surfing, traveling too much than doing a competitive format. Yeah, I was, I think Huntington's on at the moment. I think, or something's on. There's a, uh, no, it's, oh yeah, it's not pro. It's not pro. It's, it's, it's a, a amateur. Amateur champs. Yeah, yeah. It's on TV at the moment. I just saw it over lunch. It was on the TV in the corner. Yeah. And I just thought about that exactly. I thought like, it's, it's, is there more, is there a more elite sport worldwide aspirationally than surfing? Probably not. Well, there's 44, guys yeah 44 guys it's not yeah. like nfl where a team is 44 and yeah. there's 50 teams it's not like afl where there's you know 34 i don't know how many teams are on the ladder but you know you could be a professional amongst hundreds of men but not 44 human beings on the earth have this privilege yeah i mean i'd say now yet it's sold like you could do it if you surf hard enough you could be pro you could buy these board shorts and be <laughs> like kelly yeah well the advertising definitely sells the lifestyle yeah, and, the, doesn't and the dream but uh yeah, being one of those 44 is definitely a um, a hard, hard thing to attain, especially now when I just watched a contest on the weekend of 10 and 11-year-olds pulling the same kind of 360 airs that the professionals are now who are, you know, pros right at the second. Uh, so I'd say that the, the level has also massively jumped right to this point in time. Yeah. Um, so no, <laughs> anyway... I probably would have had a better chance back then I would have ever had now. <laughs> so um, when when high school ended, did you – you said your marks weren't that awesome, but did you know what you wanted to do? Did you – when high school ended, were you like, well, I'm done now. Here I am. Hello, world. What happens now? Uh, well, I wanted to travel and I went to I went to America and to the Caribbean for a couple of months traveling and I was actually – I was selling T-shirts at this Zoo U2 tour uh, for a month across America, uh, which was pretty fun. You did merch for you too. Yep, my friend was a, my my family friend was a merchandising marketing uh, manager for the for you too. So I went on tour with with that with them across America. So that was my job after when I turned eighteen. Uh, Not a bad gig. Beats Macca's drive through. Yeah, yeah, definitely beats Macca's drive through. Um, I think that I when I, mean, I came back um, and then I worked for a photographer for eight months, and that was pretty grueling because they were you know. Hang on. So let me let me just you you were a photographer's assistant. This is like the apprenticeship yeah, so, model that photographers do. Yeah, yeah. So when I came back from that that little um, trip to America, I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do, and and then I still was interested in photography, I guess, because uh, I knew a photographer from the Northern Beaches who offered me a job working for him, and um, I did that for eight months, and that was pretty full on because back then. Uh, photographers were pretty hard on their assistants and assistants have got it way easier now from what I from what I could see when I work with assistants um, because, uh, you know, we're working with big film cameras, Pentax 6.7s. Um, that's a big 
big camera to lug around and this photographer had a couple of them and we do a lot of location shoots. It's only 12 shots a roll. Uh, 10 frames. 10 on a 6.7, yeah, right. 10 frames a roll. So you're constantly having to reload. That's why you'd have a couple of bodies and, that, and lenses and that's, you know, heavy gear and I'd be getting dragged across sand dunes and, you know, 4 a.m. wake-ups and, yeah, getting lugged around and screamed at for, you know, hurry up, you know, load the film and blah, blah, blah. And so I had a pretty grueling time in my first introduction to, to uh, the world of photography and that was, that was more based on swimwear and um, kind of, lifestyle fashion stuff that that photographer was shooting um uh and i kind of got a bit turned off by the end of it mm. so i decided to uh decided to stop working for him and uh look at what else i wanted to do and i was actually i was, I was into creating stuff so i looked at landscaping and stonemasonry for a while i thought i'd get my hands dirty and do that um and after about a year of doing that i hurt my back and i wasn't i wasn't cut out for that kind of wall but i also just i wasn't really happy with what that was, what that led to. So I thought, oh, I love, what else do I love doing? So I love cooking. So I went and started to uh, work in a restaurant that I've been kitchen handing and I started learning how to cook as well. And I did that for a, a while and didn't do my apprenticeship. I just, I just learned to cook in the kitchen. And then I realized that, hang on a minute, every weekend I'm stuck in a kitchen cooking while well. my mates are out um, chasing girls and having fun and surfing and I'm stuck in here all week weekend not really getting to enjoy um you know what everybody else is doing so i felt a bit uh claustrophobic and i decided to get out of the kitchen at that stage and luckily by chance uh, a family friend was moving back from new york um who's a really famous photographer from australia over there called richard bailey um who's not with us anymore and uh he offered me a, a job as i think i was third assistant because you know they have three two assistants usually in fashion photographers back then we were shooting film and I was third because I didn't know a clue really about professional assisting or photography really. Even after the eight months of lugging stuff? Yeah, I mean, I knew a little bit, but that was a whole different world ball game when you go into the professional serious side of high-end fashion, which he was a, a big fashion photographer and was, yeah, probably one of the biggest ones ever in Australia. And I worked for him for like five years. as a Wow. Manager. Yeah, I did a long time. I mean, I thought I was going to be a rock god because I was actually playing in the band at the same time and, you know, made an EP and was playing around a bit and getting on the radio a little bit and, you know, had these dreams of being a rock god and travelling the world. What was the band? Oh, I mean, no one would have known because we didn't really get anywhere. Called Four Bolt. It was a heavy metal rock band. Uh, you, and I, you and me both, mate. I was in a metal band. Oh, uh, well, there you go. I had so the hair you, and everything. Yeah, well, uh, I didn't really have the hair, but I definitely was into the... the uh, into the noise, the power. Yeah. And, um, but so I, I kind of, what, what did you sound like? Oh, I don't know. We, our aspirations are like tool or Queens of the stone age. Really? Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, that was what we wanted to sound like. I don't know if we did, but we, we wanted to be, we were somewhere between Soundgarden and Praxis, <laughs> maybe a bit of Primus. Oh really? Yeah. We wanted to be, everything had to be in seven, eight, you know, everything, yeah. had, everything had to be. Fair enough. We had a flute player. Oh, whoa. <laughs> okay. I played a fretless bass. It was odd. Nice. I wanted to be Les Claypool. Yeah, I was going to say, you I wanted, definitely wanted to be. I wanted to be Les Claypool. Uh, but so that wasn't, that wasn't working out too well? Um, well, the lifestyle didn't really suit me. I wasn't really into um, that harder drinking or recreational smoking and, and other things. And, um, uh, the joke was, you know, what's the difference between a uh, pizza and a band? A pizza can feed four. And um, 
And I, that kind of came home to me a lot when I saw how much people were getting paid to play music in Australia. And yeah. the, that was the time when dance music was really starting to come into Australia. Yeah. And now, as you know, that there is absolutely no real live music scene in Australia. It's pathetic. And especially the rock scene is yeah. so bad. So I kind of started to, I was working for this photographer for Richard and um, I really was enjoying because we were, you know, traveling overseas and I was getting to work with people like Claudia Schiffer and Lena Christensen and, you know, people that were just gods of you know, modeling and probably I didn't know how big they were. I just, you know, was a young man thinking how hot these girls were and how awesome this job is. <laughs> and um, it was probably just, a, you know, the natural progression um, is to move into being a fashion photographer um, with the skills that I was learning and yeah. what, I, what I would actually could do. So, well, what do you what do you learn on when you do that kind of five years of working with someone like that at that level? Well, I mean, that was that was a long time. Most people probably only worked for three years. Yeah, but uh, I worked my way up from second assistant to first assistant, and then you know I was still playing the music, so I was kind of doing both and uh-huh. not really. And, you know, of course, of course, my, um, the photographer thought I was just going to be a, a musician too because I kind of I was half there. Yeah. <laughs> half wanted to be playing music, half wanted to be working. Yeah. And uh, But uh, besides the stuff like, you know, obviously I'm, I'm imagining you're shooting, probably shooting on, on EC, shooting on slides a lot uh, of the time. We, we were shooting mainly slides a lot for, for but it's very advertising. Pre- it's very precise. You've yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to be right on point with your lighting. You can't mess yeah. around. I mean, most photographers who are working digital now who've never worked in film wouldn't have a chance at being a professional photographer with the how precise you have to be with your light readings. And that's why we all had light meters and color meters and... It was it was really an art to knowing how to, to rate and process film, and especially E six and especially that was the first assistant's job to take that film to the lab and process it right. You know, so yeah, but do you a, have any horror stories about that it went, um, went wrong? No, I think you know, touch wood, not for me. But uh, I know that uh, I heard horror stories of assistants, you know, getting fired from that and. I usually found that it was the labs that would destroy film accidentally huh. somehow or going through x-rays and traveling that would destroy film and that was, you know. So that's, that's the thing, you know, like traveling from one country to another with memory cards is one thing but traveling with x-ray sensitive film. Yeah, well, I mean, as an assistant you'd go on these trips and you'd have to, you know, your job is to look after the equipment and the, the film. That was your job. So, you know, you'd be on these jobs and we'd go to, to like Tahiti or somewhere weird and be filming, um, shooting and, You'd have to look after everything, make sure everything's clean and working, and then you know have all the film categorized and you know ready for processing, and then you have to get it back into the out of the country into another back into Australia, and that was that was pretty hair, you know hair raising stuff because a lot could go wrong at any stage of that process. And uh, if anybody's used Pentax six seven, you know how easy those cameras are to break the winder on. So we'd have five or six of those cameras. Uh, that's a lot of camera gear with lenses to carry um, usually, you know, on a trip. So there was a lot, lot to learn and lots of, yeah, handle. Yeah. And then, uh, and then you know, there was just a, it was a gamut of stuff to learn um, from the film processing to lighting. You know, lighting is a whole other ball game that um, I don't know how important it is to people these days, but um, it was definitely important when I was learning and it was, it was definitely an art and photographers were definitely known for it. And I guess when the... the Terry Richardson style photography came in that really got lost because it was just a flash on camera, which does look great, but not in every single 
<laughs> type of work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guessing it's also like, I remember like, I did my, that kind of work. I did my years as a roadie, like, just like lifting heavy shit and, and mm. as a lighting guy mm. um, and just learning what it was to be in a band without, I guess, being in a band. So that's kind of, that's kind of how I learned that not just this is where you plug in the three phases is where the multi-cores go. This is how long the sets are, but also the business of it. Also the, you know, keep your eye on the bar manager. He doesn't leave. Otherwise we don't get paid, mm. you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's, there's all that stuff that people don't understand. And most people just see this glamorous life. You lead as a photographer, you know, beautiful woman and traveling. And I see the 125th of a second. That's what they see. <laughs> yeah. Basically they, they don't see, see the see frame. The... They don't see what goes on behind it. And that's what a lot of people who are interested in, in photography is learning that there's so much more to uh, being successful and to actually being able to be a photographer. Yeah. Um, you know, a big part of it's your communication skills, how you get on with clients, how you get on with shooting celebrities, act, you know, actors. Mm. If you can't communicate with people well as a photographer, you definitely ain't going to be getting a lot of work um, because it shows in your, in your photography and it shows you your with your relationships to clients. Yeah. So a lot of photographers who are really good with people um, do well and that's probably one of my assets is that I'm quite a good people person. I love talking. I love really getting to understand someone. Mm. I kind of study people as I photograph, as I shoot them and I kind of work out how to approach them in the process of what I'm trying to capture. And that's a big thing I think for most photographers is, is just working out um, what you want to capture and how to go about doing that. And also the, the, the time old thing is that there's always something's going to go wrong and just being ready for that because you're always problem solving. That was a big part I, I felt in photography first when I first started was just solving the problem on the day and being prepared for it. And not only learning how to manage the people in front of the camera but when you're doing those kind of jobs, there's a couch full of people eating catering who are looking over your shoulder. <laughs> yeah, you've got... Clients, yeah. you've got hair and makeup, you've got yeah. you know, people from the magazines or whoever you're working, you've got, yeah, you can have, and then these days now you've got a camera crew over your shoulder. So there is definitely a lot going on, but it's, you know, you can see where a lot of photographers turn into to, uh, cinematographers or directors yeah. because you are directing people yeah. a lot of the time and the best way to get stuff out of people is to direct them. Yeah. Gives them, you know, gives them a character or gives them a direction of what to do. What was the moment when... You knew them, like you say, you know, difference between a pizza and a musician is that a pizza could feed a family of four. Mm. Do you remember the moment where you went, okay, photography? Uh, yeah, I think definitely when uh, it was just definitely seeing what you could do creatively with photography compared to music. Uh, I think maybe it could have been a, a, a an economic kind of really situation really for me at the time thinking oh how much money could I make as a photographer compared to how much money I could make as a musician and you know I was around musicians who were doing well I was friends with the guys from um, Grinspoon yeah. was one of the bands that we kind of hung out with a lot back then um, you know the guys from Silverchair um, you know Skunk Hour all those kind of bands that were big in, in the Australian music scene I kind of knew them also was photographing a lot of them too. That's another way, reason I got probably into photography the same time as I was assisting in fashion. I was also shooting bands uh -huh. because I liked the imagery. I've always looked up to the imagery in, in rock photography. Mm -hmm. So I guess I was influenced. I'm not just influenced by fashion 
mm-hmm. that wasn't was stimulating me it was also music was stimulating me photography imagery wise as well yeah and i had the chance to uh actually assist a really good uh, one of the best uh music photographers in america or the world i don't know uh, a guy called chris Cafaro, who's actually got an exhibition coming out soon which will blow your mind mm-hmm. uh and at the time he was working on movie sets shooting the films to uh, the, the publicity stills with the actors and he came to australia and um i got a chance to assist him when i wasn't working for Mara richard and uh we became really good, good friends we still are to this day like i don't know how many years later 12 15 years later and uh his body of work was just once he showed me his work i was just like oh my that's just incredible like, mm-hmm. every single musician that i've ever liked he'd photographed covers of their band, of their albums or just you know for magazines yeah so yeah um but yeah but Back to the question of how did I decide? I just, I guess it was that what I could create and what would give me the lifestyle to do that was I could see was photography was leaning that way. Even though I said I knew these bands that were doing really good in Australia, I couldn't see. It was a bit, a bit of a, a lottery who yeah. made it because I've known other great bands in Australia who were just as good as them or better that didn't make it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's what kind of made my decision around that time, and it was coming up to I think. I was moving from the northern beaches into the city, and that was the, the, the kind of that was the breaking point for me. Was I wanted to move into? Right. Yeah. Do you remember when your photography? I don't know. I think I think there's a real there's a time in your life when you're making money. Yeah. Like for me, I remember it clearly. Like there was a time when I was always worried how I was going to pay my phone bill, and then I was making enough money where I wasn't worried about that anymore. I remember that was a real tipping point for me economically. Yeah. You know, because if I could pay my phone bill without really worrying, then rent and food and everything else was taken care of. Do you remember when, you know, bills stopped being like when you were able to, oh, I can do this? Yeah. I mean, um, I guess, I mean, it took me a little while to to start making money in photography. It took me a couple of years, two, three years maybe, because you really have to start again. Once you go from an assistant to a photographer, you really are starting all over. You do have the connections which get you to start getting the jobs in magazines and whatsoever, mm-hmm. but it's definitely a new road. You have to, to um, you know, you have to cut out for yourself. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely remember the, the, the phone bills and the petrol because yeah. uh, I was driving, a, you know, a large GT uh, Ford Falcon. Which was wasn't cheap on petrol. Yeah. Um, 
It was very cool to drive, but <laughs> not when you're uh, not earning a lot of money. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, so when I started shooting, yeah, it, but I think for me, money has never been about how much I've got. It's just I just use it to get to what I wanted to keep doing, what I want to do, or to enable me to keep doing what I want to do or to create what I want to create and to live the lifestyle I feel happy with living. And uh, that's always been my mantra all through my, my career. And I probably could have made more money if I'd gone down more commercial routes or, but I've been interested in, I mean, I've always spent my money traveling. Like I've, I, you know, I've definitely made the airlines a bit of money off what I've spent on just flying places just because I wanted to go somewhere different and have a look at some, some other way of living because I, I definitely got that from my childhood hmm. and that's never, never, never stopped. Still isn't, I still am called a nomad now by my friends. Uh, while a lot of them have all settled down and, you know, haven't left a, a suburb for many years, I'm constantly in some other place every month. Um, yeah, I'm going to Australia next week and I'm going to India about two weeks after that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I'm just, I, I guess it's just part of me. I'm, I'm a nomadic in nature, but the, the, the lifestyle and the career I've, I've, uh, taken and has, has led that to that kind of lifestyle being semi-nomadic myself yes you i don't understand it exactly so i should have pointed that out no no no, it's all right but i do find it now that i'm you know 40 i'm finding that it's like starting to be like tiring no it's oh lonely, you're lonely oh oh yeah it's like unless it's, you've got someone in your life that's like yes i will come with you you can't really ask someone hey just gonna go live over the side of the world for a couple, you know, half a year. If, if we're gonna go down the um, relationship routes of being a nomadic forty-year-old, which <laughs> I am, it's tricky. Um, <laughs> yeah, I could definitely say there's a reason why you could be single <laughs> if you're a nomad. Women don't usually like it when you leave a lot. I've found. Um, yeah, some do, but uh, some don't, and uh, that's understandable. But uh, I've noticed a lot of great photographers in different genres have definitely sacrificed maybe that to to lead the creative life that they lead. Um, David Nashaway is one, the photojournalist, war photographer. You know that doco? Not yet. Oh, incredible. That's an older one. But he lives a pretty, uh, pretty solitary lifestyle, I, I would say, from what I've seen on him. On him but... His art seems to come first over everything in his life, which I thank him for. But it definitely must. I don't know. He seems pretty hardened because he sees people getting yeah. killed and stuff all the time. But he's definitely lives a lonely lifestyle. And back to that, being a nomad, and yeah, it definitely can be lonely at times. Um, but I was always, I was, I'm a lonely child, so I was brought up to. Uh, make the most of my time by myself. You're all right with it? Well, I've just, I love traveling. I love learning, love seeing new things. And I don't, I'm never, I'm never lonely when I travel. I definitely think sometimes when I'm watching incredible sunsets or looking at incredible creations of whatever, that I go, oh, it would be nice to be, have, you know, a partner here to share this amazing moment with. Um, and, but then again, that's probably why I take photos so I can record all these moments, which I'll forget you know, probably in a month's time or less. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I've asked myself, why am I a photographer? And, you know, there's all these, can, you can have all these, you know, classic cliche answers to that. But one of them has always been 
for me is just to record what I've seen in my life. Uh, sure, it's a bit harder to say that when you come from a commercial sense, shooting people for magazines and advertisers. But even sometimes in that sense, you know, if I'm traveling somewhere to shoot something cool, that's a, that's a great memory for me because I've somehow managed to um, combine travel, photography uh, and work into one. And that's what excites me. Uh, I love traveling still. I love taking photos and I love getting paid to do it. <laughs> Don't we all? Um, but yeah, and it's, yeah, that's, that's pretty much why I'm here now, why I'm still doing it and why, yeah, as I said, probably live a nomadic style life. But, you know, I'm sure it probably will change once I have a family. <laughs> so when... Because, you know, I still meet people. I meet people from the States more often than not. You meet people from the States who have never left America. Yes. Um, they ask me if I have kangaroos in the backyard in yeah. Australia. Yep. It's kind of odd. What do you get from travel? I get the same feeling when I was eight or nine as I do now, that feeling of just experiencing something new that's teaching you, that you're learning from cultures and and architecture and smells and sights and sounds and light i get that it's extremely uh extremely profound feeling i still get now as to when i was a little kid traveling i still get the same buzz and and i don't know where i I sometimes get deja vu or thinking oh that was what i was like when i was this young seeing something but yeah my love for life and you know planet and animals and what what's created is what's still keeps me you know buzzed what do you learn about i don't know what it is to be what it is to be human from seeing other cultures it's definitely as i say broadens your mind do you see parallels across different cultures oh we're all we're all one we're all united as one but there's so many kind of uh so many different things that seem to hold people back to realizing that we're all the same. Um, and that might be simple things like a language or a cultural difference or a dress style or a food. Geography. And that, or, or a geography. Or, yeah. There's a river between the two of us. We have, yeah. the, we have the same faces. We have the same genetic code. We, have, we look the same, but there's a river. And that, for that reason alone, you're you and I'm me and we hate you. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, that divide is why we have this little problem at the moment on the planet. Yeah. Uh, but what I see is lost. That's all lost when I travel. And what I've noticed is that you travel around the world and majority of the people are so happy to meet you. When you've, you've got that I must have a look that's really open and really, you know, stoked to meet someone from a different country and learn something about their culture. And I, I do. I, I put my, um, my whole, you know, heart and soul into wherever I go and wherever I meet. And I'm really genuinely interested in learning and, and experiencing that different culture or that different place, whether I'm photographing it or I'm meeting someone or mm. you know, learning about a place. So, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it just, it just never ceases to amaze me how amazing this, this planet is. And it's uh, probably why as I'm getting a bit older, I'm starting to look into uh being involved in things that can help the planet because I see so much destruction and negativity going on. And that was 
that was just reminded to me. Well, that was just really um, brought home to me when I was in New York uh, about a week and a half ago. I went to um, uh, Sebastian Salgado's exhibition, uh, Nemesis, I think it was called. Nemesis? I might have got that wrong. Anyway, it's his, it's, it was like a 10 year um, body of work on climate change. And he just photographed places, people, cultures around the world in black and white. And it was, you know, the most beautiful exhibition I've pretty much ever seen. If you're into that kind of, you know, type of photography, you know, and it was, it was really powerful. And I've watched a little video on him talking about what it is to be a photographer. And he's saying, it's not, it's not, it's not the photography um, in a sense, it's, it's getting people to see what he's showing and to make them understand about the planet and about the diversity of everything on this planet, what's so important. And I just thought that was really cool. I thought someone, I mean, he's always done incredible work in, you know, National Geographic time and, you know, Life magazine back in the day. And um, it, it was just, it was just made me feel, wow, it's powerful to be a photographer if, if you go about it the right way to use it in some way also to help people instead of just helping yourself, which is a great thing to be able to do. And so, you know, I've been involved in certain little things along the, along the way recently in the last couple of years, you know, well, wildlife fund, I've done some stuff for um, Sea Shepherd and, and then um, I'm working on a new program. That's uh, why I'm going to India. It's called Food Ladder and that's a, a program of teaching people how to, uh, well, mainly the people in the slums, how to grow their own food through a um, process of um, systems that they're building out of recycled plastic. And that's just something I've just learned about recently and uh, a lady from um, Sydney that I've met and I'm just, I'm like, God, is there anything I can do to help? That's because I've just wanted to do things that can help with my skill set. And she's like, oh, that'd be amazing if you come to India and photograph some of India and, and some of these places and just do an awareness campaign and, you know, somehow highlight that through your photography. And I'm like, Sure, I'd love to. I mean, A, I get to go to an amazing country, I get to photograph it, and I'm doing something that kind of makes me feel good mm. with what, what, I, what I can do. I get overwhelmed sometimes when I, mm. when I, when I look at something so massive as climate change, mm. something that will eventually force us all to understand that we are all, are all one. Yeah, we're all one and we, all, we could all be all, all one over at the same, you know, one day. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah it could really, you know. I get quite overwhelmed with it's such a massive, complicated problem with 10 billion facets, each as important as the other. Yeah. But just the idea of what you're describing, what's one thing that I can do within my power that I can do and to just to be at peace with like that's all I can do and try and be at peace with that, like that, that's all I can do today. I struggle, I struggle with that because part of me wants to, how can I fix it all? Yeah, well, you, you never will be able to, and that's yeah. that's why I liked um, was Gandhi's quote, the one where he says, "Be the change you want to see." And well, I can't remember. He didn't quote. actually say it, but he gets attributed to him. He, well, he gets attributed to it, be yeah. the change you want to see in, other, in the world or whatever. Yeah. It is. So, you know, so that you know, just one little thing changing the way you do things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Drive a Prius. <laughs> so it's a Nissan Leaf. It's downstairs. Oh, it's, it's electric. <laughs> oh, yeah. You you are definitely on. I on the hand of driving a V eight truck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just a contradiction in terms, really, aren't I? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's such a big problem. But I think the more and more people kind of band yeah. together, and I mean, I love social um, media and how that's helping. And you know, even crazy people like Russell Brand and stuff who are highlighting certain things about the planet and about the system that's in place. Um, 
I think it's great because it's the whole system that's in place right now. That's the major problem and you can't dismantle it that easily. Yeah. Because, you know, everything's based upon trade and yep. fuel and, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that, which we can't get around uh, changing. There's so many jobs rely on that. How do you, oh, yeah, just go green. <laughs> what about all the people that were involved in that whole process? What are they supposed to do? Yeah. So, you know, it's it's not going to happen straight away, but it's I think as everybody starts getting involved yeah. in some way, we could definitely have a better life for our children's children. Well, I think that's the thing that I come to is that when I do get overwhelmed by the hopelessness, and I do, and it, when those days come, it sucks, um, I just think the only option we will have is to change to some more fabulous, brighter way or perish. There's no, there's, there's no, no, there's no middle ground. No. But I think that it'll be a, it'll be a middle ground transition, hmm. uh, and I don't think we we're going to see it quite soon. But no. hopefully the planet's going to last. Well, I think the planet will be fine. Planet I think fine. our ability to survive on the planet won't be fine if we don't fix it in the next fifty years. Yet, yeah. I mean, it might be quicker the way it's going. I don't know. I mean, it's it's really hard to tell with what the media puts out and what's actually real. And hmm. But anyway, um, I think as you get to our age, your consciousness grows more and you want to, to um, you know, at least start um, being a part of the solution hmm. more than the problem. I wonder if it's got something to do with the denial of death. I wonder if it's got something to do like, you know, I'm halfway there, uh, you know, the gray is gray in my chest hair. Um Am I trying to? <laughs> am I trying to deny my own uh, mortality yeah. by by transplanting it to something else? I wonder if that's going to. Come I think consumerism is definitely a great one for definitely not thinking about that. Yeah, I think that. But I think every time you have someone dies in your life, you get that mortality gets brought straight back in front <laughs> yeah. of you again. And as we get past forty, more people start seeming to leave the planet that you know. Yeah. Um. So yeah. I, uh, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. Mortality. I. I definitely think. Uh, consumerism is definitely keeping people, you know, worried about their their ego, their looks, and what they have is more important than what's going on with their environment or their yeah. health, which is insanity. But that's the insanity of humans, isn't it? Really, we're not. If you're an alien looking down on this planet, you would be pretty freaked out. Well, what we do, we pollute, we pollute every facet of our ecosystem that we survive off. And we've got weapons that can blow up the planet quite easily. It's like, oh, yeah, these guys are pretty, uh, we better tread lightly with this little planet. We're an interesting bunch, aren't we? It's when you put it like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No wonder we make interesting subjects to photograph. Because, <laughs> you know. I wonder if they photograph people when they come down here. Well, I'm sure they do. Uh, but um yeah speaking speaking of photographing people like yeah. you know back to what we were back well talking quite often uh photography by kane skinner <laughs> is usually preceded on the page that says swimsuit issue there's <laughs> 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 not you know there's been a t- time in your life where you've you know what's what is for people who are wondering what's the fantasy versus the reality of spending all day on set with a woman who's naked to the waist, usually from both ends. Uh, what's the reality of it? Yeah, versus like what's the fantasy, what's the reality? 
hmm, it's hard because I live my life probably both in fantasy and reality <laughs> anyway. But uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I love women. So that's, you know, one of the reasons why I love fashion photography is that I got to photograph these um, creatures that are deemed to be, you know, of an amazing appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that came from my first uh, association with photography and fashion and women, which is one of um, Helmut Newton's books that my mum had because my mum took photos as well and it was called Private Viewing. I think that's the name of that book. Mm-hmm. And I opened these pages to these very powerful, very strong and very sexually powerful-looking women. Um, and I was hooked pretty much there on maybe women and maybe photography. <laughs> It's funny, man. We have the same. My my dad had. I think my dad had the same book. Um, I think my dad had the same book. And I remember. So the first women I saw that were nude, that were in this book, it was a hardcover, so it wasn't porn. It was art. Mm. Um, but the first women that I saw, they were these. He loved. They were big. They were powerful. Powerful women. Yeah. Women, and they were women. Women. They were shaped like women. Yeah, there was like, curves. Yeah. There yeah. was, yeah. I remember my little. I had no idea what to do. I felt funny in my tummy. I didn't know what the hell's going on. Yeah, yeah well, that's awesome. It's the power. But that imprint is so strong on me, though. Yeah, I mean that still is to me today. I I still have always um, preferred those more powerful, curvaceous kind of you know, women mm. to photograph. Even though the industry I worked in doesn't really like that, except for the swimwear. Mm. Um, Another, another, some other aspects of photography, but uh, that that was the most powerful inclination for me about photography and being in fashion. And when I started to get into fashion photography, that was just that was definitely there. I mean, for me, it was just about capturing that that feminine beauty, that energy. That's that's something that always, as a man, kind of left me breathless or left me in you know slight shock. Yeah. <laughs> When you you mentioned earlier, when you're wanting to get that great shot, a lot of it is is, is directing. How do you as a how do you find directing uh, a, it's, a woman in that situation? Well, it's like any kind of communication. It's that engagement with the opposite with the person in front of you, hmm. and then how what what you communicate to that person, and how it's communicated is how that person reacts, hmm. and that's a massive thing in photography for sure and shooting. Yeah, we're shooting the opposite sex. Um, sure, there's some kind of sometimes play that, that's, that, that happens. There's some kind of, um, you know, banter that can happen and that's all good. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. why I guess a lot of men shoot women's fashion, even though there's plenty of women, especially now shooting women's fashion and I have no problem with that. I love what they shoot. Um, but I've definitely, I definitely think there is something that happens when you engage a person and I, I mean, I can engage a man as well when I'm shooting them. I, I have no preference. I don't really find it an issue shooting men and women. I find them both the same. But of course, my um, my you know, I'm heterosexual, so of course I love shooting women probably more. Um, and it's it's that kind of communication that I have is what then creates what I want to do. And I think we should be clear though. It's you don't. And I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't look forward to those shoots or prefer that because of any kind of sexual opportunism. It's, it's just no, the, 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 the energy and the chemistry and, yeah, you know, 
I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it happen on set. Uh, yeah. You know, when the woman who's being shot is, you know, she's married, she's got kids, whatever, and the yeah. photographer is, he's married. But there's a thing that happens between them. Yeah, that it's within that space is where the photos happen. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's that. You know, that space is. Created. And no one's. It's not like there's. It's not flirting or anything. It's a very different sort of communication. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, our, our social structuring around men and women and relationships and kind of the energy and flirting and banter and stuff has definitely been distorted now. Um, but there is that space that's created for sure that enables the woman to relax and to bring out that feminine side mm. of her that definitely you can see in the photos. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, some some models, I don't really direct them. I can tell that they just know how to move and they're great because I'm just capturing them mm. creating what they feel. From you know, they women change when they put on clothes. They they change when they put on makeup. They change when they're given a theme or a, a persona. So sometimes it's not really me. It's I'm just there, just clicking the button. You know, I'm just like a photojournalist sometimes, and that's great for me because um, <laughs> I love it when I just get to watch them and just let them play. Yeah, and you know, sometimes a lot of great models are like that. They don't need to be directed. Subtle little things can you know, need to direct them, but I mean. The issue is a lot of the young girls in fashion have shot definitely are not as confident with themselves and their femininity and they have to be directed more so and that's what you'll find when you shoot um, uh-huh. the younger type models, which is, yeah, which is doesn't really interest me as much either but that's what the, the industry is interested in and yeah. the marketing is interested in. Um, so, yeah, you do have to direct yeah. and create that space. When you look, you mentioned earlier photographers now who are coming into the industry who don't have the experience of being so precise with their lighting and, and things like that, like having no leeway in the days before digital. Oh, we're going to go into this talk now, are we? Well, I think it's important. <laughs> I oh, think- no, the, the bitter older um, film photographer talking about the new age digital the, kids. The grisly old, <laughs> we're the grisly old man talking now about back in my day. Yeah, because now I'm that older photographer, which is still bizarre to me since I've always felt I was the young one. But, um, yeah, it's a total different. Point. How's it changed your industry? How's it changed your industry now? Because here's the thing: we've been talking about this particular camera, and you don't need to know what a Pentax X7 is, but it's a very expensive piece of machinery, and they're hard to come by, and they're heavy, and you just wouldn't have one lying around the house. But now, the price of almost pro-grade camera gear has dropped so low that people who otherwise would never have access to these machines, which are so enormously complicated with metering and, and, and everything, they have the ability. Like you, yes. you can put it on green and hit go and get a pretty good result. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how's, that, how's that access to this kind of equipment changed what you do? Well, I mean, some would say, well, mo- a lot of people would say it's destroyed the industry. Mm-hmm. It's, it's enabled people who are not very good to come into the industry and um, basically lower the quality and lower the... Um, the money involved for sure. I mean, because especially I noticed in Australia um, where it's based on budgets, people really just want to get the job done as cheap as possible. And because you've got that standard of photography and the technology that's coming out, it's it's quite easy to get just a nice picture. Um, and, you know, you can put on auto and get a, a not, not, you know, depending on if, if you know what you're doing kind of lighting-wise or it's a simple lighting system, um, you can get, a you know, pretty pretty average nice picture. I mean, I don't really look up to many people I see shooting these days in Australia. 
Whereas when I was a younger photographer, there was people I thought were complete artists and, you know, and a total different level of photography to what's been created. But that's just, you know, now it's changed and the technology is enabled. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, sure. It's been amazing seeing the technology change and it's gotten to, it's getting to a point now where it's actually quite good and what you can create. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, also you can definitely save yourself in Photoshop and the leeway you have with, you know, some of the technology that's helping people who not necessarily know what they're doing. Um, so, I mean, what do I feel? What do I think? I, it's just, it's just the market. Just, just, that's like anything. Mm. I mean, everything's changing. Everything's becoming quicker, easier, you know, but they don't have that. I guess then if, if the, if the technology is now level playing field, it's mm. the thing you talked about before is that communication that would set well, it sets apart. people apart is their yeah. artistic interpretation and their creative style and yeah. what they do. Yeah, that sets people apart. But I've noticed a lot of people just copy a lot of people's work and they just emulate that because they can. They know how to do it and they know they can get the buy the um, the filter on you know for their Photoshop or Lightroom and to do the plug in later and that kind of bam, it looks kind of like you know some kind of photographer's work that was you know well known for that technique. Is there is that a, a client thing, or is is that what the magazines are asking for? Oh, I'd be a combination of everything there, really. Mm. But it's definitely, I mean, in the end, you still got to take a good picture for sure. And you can't. I can I can try and blame technology and you know that what are they called the millennia kids that are millennial coming, millennial kids that they're coming up with who who seem to be smarter and more ambitious and confident than ever. Well, they are. Well, <laughs> okay, it's true. Um, <laughs> Damn them. Um, but um, Good on them. Yeah. But anyway, that's evolution, isn't it? But um, it's you still got to take a good picture. Yeah. And a lot of these situations, as, as we talked about before, having a crew of people behind you, having clients wanting great shots in a certain amount of period of time and they're going to look at your picture straight away on a computer screen. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people ruining jobs and, you know, not being asked to shoot again. Um, and um, there's still... Of course, there's still clients and magazines that have a higher standard that only hire great photographers. But I'd say a lot of the bread and butter work for a lot of photographers has, has disappeared because of that influx of technology and mm -hmm. and youth that want to shoot anything for free. It's like being a DJ um, here in the in LA. There are some clubs where DJs pay the club to play. Yeah, I've heard of this. Not the other way around. Yep, I've heard of this. Just nuts, man. Just just so they can have that. As their um, like, I've played this. I won't even mention the club, mm. but just so they can have that on their resume, so that when they go to um, when they go to you know Arizona or whatever to play a gig, they can say, "Oh, I've played at this place on Hollywood Boulevard." Yeah, I mean, it's definitely about getting all that kind of. Um, Doesn't like, mean they're good. <laughs> no, I mean that's the thing. You can have a book full of incredible pictures that you've, mm. you've manipulated or taken. Doesn't necessarily mean you'll get the work. Um, yeah, it's it's you know it's a, it feels like a bit of a free for all now. I, I must admit in photography, and it, it definitely feels like it's changed quite massively since I first started in the game. Well, there was the barrier to entry. Like, slide film is expensive, and to get development is expensive. I would spend eight hundred dollars my own money on one shoot, buying a film, processing, proofing it, printing it, and then you know putting in my portfolio. One shoot, eight hundred dollars. When you're a young photographer, 
it took me probably three years to buy my Pentax 6-7 gear after having 35 mil gear. I mean, the, no one would do it because it was any the fail rate, if you didn't know what you're doing in transparency, you, you'd blow hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Yeah, that's not a career that people will, will just think, oh, I can do this, so just get this camera. And Nah, you wouldn't do it because of the financial risk. Yeah, You really had to know what you were doing. It was really, it was a science. I mean, you know, Ansel Adams and those guys back in the day were scientists. They were mixing chemicals and they were, yeah. you know, working out mathematics and light and like and then you know it was quite a nerdy thing even when i started a lot of was a lot of nerdy photographers who became big fashion photographers i think herberts was quite a nerd back in the day anyway um i've got my jobo processor in the bathroom just in case you're well that was a good that was a great film they don't make that anymore do they I've got it's a West German jobo i've got it under my bathroom sink oh nice yeah um so and yeah i'm I've got some Ansel Adams books, the view camera ones. It's super nerdy. It's like yeah, it's inverse technical. square law stuff and and graphs and yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's total, total the zones science. and the latitudes, all that stuff. Yeah, so I was learnt reading those books, going huh? Yeah, but I learned it all. But yeah, now it's a totally different thing. It's it's you know when I say to young photographers and people wanting to get into the industry, shoot as much as you can. Sure, learn how to shoot everything, but find out what style you want to shoot. And then learn how to retouch and learn, how to learn Photoshop ASAP. Yeah. Because it is like being a painter or an artist. You can create what you really want to create on the secondary stage of, of the output of that, of that image through photo, you know, on the computer, which is where everything goes to now. Mm. So that's the whole other level. Like a lot of older photographers are, are either spending a lot of money on retouches or just can't be bothered with learning how to do it all because it's just a whole new mm. system of thought and, Whole, it's a job. It's a whole different skill set. There's a mate of mine who, as a, as a photographer, and they, um, the retouching was taking up so much of their workflow time. They now they just have someone in India that does it for them. Yes, yeah. HCP magazines in Australia sends all its most of its work to get done in Bangladesh or India. Right. Lots of photographers do it. Um, yeah, I mean they're charging nothing to do the retouching. Well, it's just taking up so much of their time. Yeah, I mean that's what it does. It it really does take up too much of your time. Yeah. So, go on. But yeah, if you can pay someone a third world country, you know, a tenth of the price of what you pay a retoucher in America or Australia, you're going to do it. If you want to run a business, you know, a, a financially viable business, and I'd say a lot of photographers would have to do that. Yeah. Or having systems in place that make it a lot easier to pump out. And, you know, a lot of photographers probably have quit and um, changed businesses or retired because. Mm. Money is definitely not like it used to be. Oh, I'm going to retire before I shoot a wedding. Never <laughs> shooting a wedding. Oh, wedding! Actually, wedding photographers still make a lot of money. I know. I know yeah, a couple. Yeah, they do. <laughs> so, if people are, you know, a lot of people listening will have never picked up a DSLR. Probably, you know, never will, considering mirrorless cameras are, you know, better and better. How do they take better Instagram photos? I was waiting for you to get to that point because basically. What I shoot on mainly my phone <laughs> for Instagram, although no, not all the time because it's a pro thing now. Instagram, um, how to take a better picture on it for Instagram. Some great apps for Instagram out there. Yeah, uh, definitely know, definitely know which way to shoot for lighting for the camera for the smartphone. Yeah, um, yeah, that's pretty much. Really. So, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, you know, some cameras don't expose too well. Smartphone cameras don't expose too well. Mm -hmm. 
uh, i.e. low light, backlight. So a lot of front lights usually pretty good mm. or, you know, direct light. Uh, if I only wish that iPhone, all I wish is that, where's my iPhone? Or that Samsung right there. Why do they put the flash right next to the lens? Why can't they put the flash on the other side of the phone? Like just get the flash away from the lens. Because then you get that nasty red eye. I was at this Halloween party the other night and worked because we were dressed up like ghouls. Yeah. But all you see is retinas. <laughs> They've got a, an app for that. They've got a, a spot, you know, red, red eye remover. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. What did Yumi always used to say? If your photos suck, take two steps forward. Oh, really? Nice. <laughs> yeah. He's a smart philosopher, that one. She, Yumi oh. Steins. Oh, Yumi Steins. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. She's a great photographer. Yeah, she, yeah she's a, the other person that really made me want to be a photographer. She had a Leica R8 and I was like, what is that? She goes, other people buy sports cars, I buy cameras. Yeah. Wow. I know. I think I had about 30 cameras at one point. I was like, well, I think I better stop buying cameras and photographic books. Yeah, I moved countries. So yeah. I, I've, I've stopped buying cameras mostly. I haven't bought a new camera in a while, a year and a half. The Olympus OM5 yeah. was the last one I bought. Yeah. That's a fantastic little machine. Yeah, no, I've heard that. Yeah, it's actually, it was that or the Fuji X100 and I got that instead. It's, it's actually really good. Yeah, well, I work with Nikon now, so I get try and stay up to date with their best cameras. See, if I could go again, if I could go again, I would have gone Nikon over Canon just because of the way that Nikons uh, communicate directly to the hot shoe flashes oh, yeah. off camera. Yeah, that you don't need. I've had to go and buy familiar pocket wizards. Yeah, yeah, Canon. because yeah, yeah. yeah, Canons they had the IR, but so yeah. now we're talking super nerdy camera. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah the IR is terrible. Uh, the IR communication they have the the Canon flashes. Are yeah, it's not my reason for it. I mean, I've used both. But you started on Nikon when you were ten. Come on, yeah, you're I mean, loyal. I've, oh, I've just always <laughs> liked the look of the the files in digital when yeah. I've gone through the. I mean, I was working with the big camera, the Hasselblad H1 digital back which was you know fifty thousand dollars to set up when i've got into that type of photography all that that system and um that was a great camera but uh just too big and bulky and slow and the the, the nikon started to get really good mm-hmm. and they surpassed canon and some of their features and most of my friends shoot canon especially in the fashion photography it's mm-hmm. all it's like 90 percent. i would think canon but yeah. i think it's changed a lot now because of the iso and the the focusing systems are so good, and the, yeah. I like I like the grain. I like the look of the digital files of, of Nikon's. Right. Yeah. If I if I could go again, even though Canon have been very very good to me. If, well, we we both got our sponsors here. So. <laughs> well, here's the thing, and people ask me a lot, what's the best camera to buy, like Nikon or Canon? I'm like, what's the best plane to catch the Gold Coast, Boeing or Airbus? Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, you know, it's like I think Helmut Newton would just use any camera to shoot, you know. Yeah, he wasn't fussed about equipment, and that's what a lot of people get too tech savvy, too caught yeah. up in it. Myself being one, and you too. I've got it. Yeah, well, I can see the the row of cameras up there. Fifteen, I think, or something, yeah. or fourteen instant cameras up there. Yeah, but I, I mean, I mean, they're also different looks. Those type of cameras. They are. But I think you know, in the end, it's it's what you capture the moment. It's all about the moment for me, and that can be captured on my phone, iPhone, or or you know film camera or digital camera it's just about what i capture and that's pretty much what comes down to in the end so would you say that over the years your ability to know when the moment is coming and make sure you're in the right spot has been the thing that sets you apart <laughs> i've got an ad out for for nikon of me think that, that actually it's, um i am ready <laughs> really yep 
it's about being ready for the moment. Uh, and yeah, to a degree, it's I'm sure I've probably uh, become more. Um, how would you say? Like, definitely prepare myself and know beforehand what I want to shoot and create, and more prepared for the moment. But it's always been my eye. It's always been my creative eye. That's always been there. It's just developed and evolved as my my experience and my my level of understanding of photography has gotten better. And I think, you know, like most artists, it, it never stops getting better or never change. It never you don't get to a pinnacle. I think you just keep growing and exploring and you know evolving. But your eye is still your eye, and it's always going to be your what you capture in your moment that sets you maybe apart or maybe not, but just it's just yours, you know, can't take that away from you. When do we see the, uh, the, the private collection? <laughs> When's that exhibition coming from your travels, man? Cause that, that stuff must be amazing. Yeah. I've got, I've got a pretty good level of, uh, pictures of travel, but, uh, I've got an exhibition going to come out soon, but that's not to do with that. It's to do with something I like to shoot and crossing over the theme. And I thought it was quite interesting. Uh, I, I love shooting the water. I love shooting anything around ocean. I mean, a lot of my work is based around beach or the ocean. Mate, you grew up surfing. Yeah, I mean, come again, on. Again, how do I, how do I get a job where I get to go to the beach, hang out with pretty girls, and travel? Yeah, and possibly go surfing in between or after work, and it's shooting location-based swimwear or fashion. Yeah, or lifestyle stuff at the beach. So I've just combined that, yeah, all, all my life and it seemed to have pulled it off so far. Um, and then, yeah, just my the what I wanted to express through exhibition style work is um, that's what I've been capturing. I've done, it's done an exhibition that's been shot up in the water off um, Byron Bay in the past. Uh, and, yeah, that exhibition is going to come out pretty soon. I'll let you know. Oh, please do. I'm sure you'll, you'll enjoy it when you do. Oh, mate, absolutely. So on that, yeah. how is... How's surfing, I guess, how has surfing informed what you do? Like when shit's going down on the set, when, you know, flash dance fall over and models are crying and clients are shouting, how does being a surfer and having been in those high stakes situations on very shallow reef breaks, how does that inform what you do? Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, as anybody who interacts with the ocean, has a level of respect and a level of modesty that's um, learned that we're not um, all-encompassing, powerful humans on this planet when um, a bit of water can pretty much change <laughs> your reality in a very short period of time. Um, and through that process and experience, you learn to, um, I think, really be grounded. Uh, I noticed that surfers are a very grounded bunch uh, and they have a lot of integrity and they seem to deal with situations uh, that could be threatening maybe a bit better than most because usually when you are surfing certain places, it's quite, you know, life-threatening or can be potentially very dangerous and you're putting yourself into the food cycle or circle, <laughs> I, should say, I should say as well, um, especially now in Australia. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, integrity that's that's definitely bred there that makes um, – most surface very down to earth, very kind of solid kind of people. And that probably has come across, yeah, in those situations where I've had with work because I don't usually get phased by things going down badly. Uh, 
probably why I wanted to be a war journalist photographer because I would like to put myself in places that were really dangerous, uh, kind of thrive off it. So, and then I guess I got the, the buzz from that was probably shooting weddings as a younger photographer because <laughs> that's just as scary. <laughs> cool, man. Yeah. Well, look, mate, I'm, I'm thrilled that you could take the time to come down here, bro. Thank this you. Yeah, thank you for having me. No worries. I know you're up in Topanga Canyon at the moment. You're liking it? Yeah, I like being up there in the hills. It's interesting. It's not a, it's not a, never incorporated into a county. It's its own thing, Topanga Canyon. It is, yeah. It's a different little world up there. Yeah, it's and not that, like here. This is LA City and next door is Santa Monica City. It's its own thing. It doesn't have anything going on. Everyone's on sewerage. It's kind of... Yeah, no, it's definitely maybe in a time warp still. Yeah. Uh, and you'd see from some of the people walking in the street, they're in a time warp as well. It's nine miles from here. I can't, it's wild when you come to Venice and you're only... What's that? What's nine miles? Like 13K? Yeah. From here. Like that, yeah. 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And it may as well be the 60s. It's yeah, you, you can go back in time up there and you feel like you're, you know, I feel like I'm kind of in Byron Bay, a desert version of Byron Bay. Yeah. Um, but I like it. I like being able to get from there. I can be in West Hollywood in amongst the craziest scenes ever or situations yeah. or places or people. And then I can retreat back to there and be, you know, yeah, just listen to the squirrels or the coyotes. And there's this great surf break at the end of the street. Uh, yeah, just watch out for the locals. Yeah. They're, you know, you mentioned that surfers can be grounded, but they can also be territorial. Oh, definitely territorial, yes, especially in America, I find. Well, especially in this city, what, there's 18 million people yeah. here and there's five surf breaks. You've got a population <laughs> problem, I'm sure. Yeah. Like down here at the pier, you know, you see it spray painted around, but you see locals only written on the pier. They mean it. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll learn quickly here learn what quickly. localism is. I go way down the beach when I surf here. I go way way down and surf the pier. It's probably probably a lot safer doing that too. Yeah, yeah, my word. All right, so now I'm actually going to take your photo. Awesome. Oh, okay, let's do it. All right. I'm I'm interested to see how you uh, direct me. <laughs> <laughs> pressure, pressure. No, no pressure at all. <laughs> I did the setup shot earlier. <laughs> There it is. That's Kane. What a what an interesting guy. What an interesting guy. You can follow him on Twitter right now. Um, on Instagram, I should say. He's on Instagram. He's a photographer. He's on Instagram. K-A-N-E-S-K-E-N-N-A-R. Let him know you heard him here. Let him know you heard him on the show. And if you heard anything in this show that uh, resonated with you, please do me the kindness and tweet out a link. Let a friend know. Let a friend know. And... I won't bug you too much more. Only two more shows I'll ask you to do this, but please, my moustache needs you. I'm 40, but still I look like I'm 14. Or not even. My moustache is... It needs help. And um, I'm growing it because I... And I'm going to go in front of uh, the nation's media next week uh, for for a gig uh, with this t- bad teenage moustache because I think it's really important to start a conversation about destigmatizing mental health and giving money to people who can help make that into a reality. Those people are Movember and you can donate mobro, M-O-B-R-O dot C-O slash Osher Ginsberg. Um, you can go there, just don't, just throw me a dollar. Throw me a dollar, that's all I'm asking. Throw me 10 if you want, but I'll take a buck. Um, hey, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very, very, very much. Um, normally I'd tell you what I normally tell you, but this time around I'm going to say, enjoy writing your journal. 
And then sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Have a good week. I'm really grateful that you listened. Talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 